0: welcome back to another episode of the curious cult podcast uh, as always i am your obsessively curious curious host nick haranambus and with me today is a very good friend of mine who i'm excited to talk about because his interests are as wide vast and deep as mine um so i'd like to welcome yossi hassan please correct me if i pronounced your surname incorrectly um yoss welcome
1: Thanks, Nick. Always uh, good to see you and catch up. Um, surname's Hassan, uh, but uh, I, won't, I won't hold you to that.
0: <laughs> yeah, mine's Harold Amber, so we'll call it even. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yours. why don't you kick us off by telling everybody a little bit about yourself, uh, and then we'll dive in.
1: Sure. Uh, so... Like Nick said, I'm Yossi Hassan, originally South African, born and raised, and uh, spent the past two and a half years of my life now in New York City. Uh, but before coming here, was a uh, tech entrepreneur, um, probably most well-known in SA for building a company together with a good friend of mine called Synac, which was one of the first open source software companies that was trying to bring open source software to, uh, to businesses at the time when... Microsoft and Steve Ballmer was calling Linux a cancer and uh, and comparing open source software to communism. So uh, there was uh, a lot Steve of... Ballmer. <laughs> there was a lot of fud out there about what is this kind of way of developing software where people have no financial incentive and it's open and anyone can contribute to it. Uh, but myself and my partner, David, saw that as the future and the way that software will get developed and the future of the internet and everything that will come after it. Uh, so we built a business... Uh, I was 21 at the time. We spent 11, I spent 11 years in, as the CEO of that company, uh, growing it through the ups and downs and everything that happens in trying to scale a tech startup uh, and then ultimately sold that company to uh, Dimension Data. Uh, after that, left, went into the world of uh, VC, uh, joined a US uh, accelerator or a US VC called Techstars, helped them launch their first fintech-focused program in Africa, uh, and at the same time, uh, launched a nonprofit coding school called, called We Think Code, which takes anyone with the aptitude uh, to learn to become a coder age 17 to 35 and puts them through a two year very vigorous program uh, completely free uh, and hoping to train Africa's next 100,000 coders in, uh, over the next 10 years. Um, and recently moved to New York City to continue investing in startups and primarily focused on blockchain, crypto, and founders trying to build or working on building a more open um, internet and financial system. So uh, that's pretty much me. You've done some shits. You've done some shit in your life. Um,
0: so Jos, yes, I've been really, really keen to talk to you um, in the 50-odd episodes I've done. Um, I think you're one of the most... Widely curious, deep thinkers that I know. And every time I spend time with you, my brain kind of shifts into a new direction. So, I kind of, where I want to start is how did you develop this voracious curiosity? Like, has it always been there? Do you remember being a kid and thinking, I must know everything? Like, where did it come from?
1: Um, well, thank you for that, but I, I probably don't don't see myself that way. Um, yeah. maybe, where, maybe where it came from was I never thought that I was going to go to university and go to college uh, and kind of go down what I thought back then in school was the traditional path of you go to school, you get out of school, you go get a degree, you get a degree, you become an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor or something like that. And this path is kind <laughs> of set out you. Um, and maybe it was just a function of the time I read a book by Bill Gates um, called The Road Ahead and Michael Dell called uh, Direct from Dell. I think I was maybe 12 or 11, uh, 11 or 12 or 13 years old, somewhere around there. And just they painted this picture of these young guys who were building these revolutionary companies and didn't fit into the mold. And I thought, well, that's who I want to be. I want to be this kind of person who um, doesn't fit the mold. So I think by not having a traditional path or at least not attaching myself to this traditional path, it forced me to be more open and aware of everything else that is happening. What's going on in technology? What's going on uh, outside of South Africa? What's going on um, just with the people that I'm interacting with and always being aware of this type of thing um, or these types of things that are happening because I didn't have this thing to set myself on and say, this is the path that I'm on. So it's kind of that uncertainty breeded the curiosity of what's going on around around me and in the world with me, uh, especially in the world of technology, which was unfolding so quickly. And no one knew where this would go. No one knew, you know, when the time when PCs first come out, did, were these going to be the things that control our lives? Were these going to be the things that actually become um, the way that we transact and uh, the way that we communicate? And no one expected it to put, per- potentially to get to the point that it's at today, but just that unfolding was so exciting that I wanted to be a part of that. So that's probably where it came from.
0: Yeah, I love, uh, I've actually never had anyone say this on the podcast, but I love the statement that you made, uncertainty breeds curiosity. Um, And it's it's such a poignant observation that most people rebel against and resist, right? Especially in the last 18 months, this word uncertainty has become like a thing. Uh, Resilience, agility, uncertainty, but... For entrepreneurs, uncertainty is like Tuesday. It's just part of the deal. Like, <laughs> exactly. So I love that you've linked those two things. It's uh, it's kicked my brain into something interesting. Um, so your intro made us aware of this very vast collection of interests that you have. And there's so many that you haven't mentioned, like psychedelics, cryptocurrency, NFTs, blockchain, like all this stuff. Um, makes me want to ask you about the Japanese concept of Ikigai and this concept of a vocation that's like romantically movies tell you that you should be one thing forever. You're a doctor. You should always be a doctor. What's your take on that?
1: Um, I don't, I don't think I subscribe to that. I don't believe it. Uh, I think that type of notion of where you kind of need to know your purpose, uh, it creates a sense that if you don't have that, then what is your kind of reason to exist or what is, what is your reason for being there's something wrong with you. If you don't know what your purpose is and I, As I've gotten older, I think life just is. Uh, We're here, you're here. (laughs) My reason for being is to accept that and enjoy the highs and lows of this existence and everything that happens in between. Um, You know, I I, I think there's been 13.8 billion years that had to unfold exactly as it has for this exact moment, for me to be talking to you at this exact moment, and it's beautiful and I'm not at the center of that. And I think this idea that you have to have your purpose for being, Puts you at the center of the universe when both me and you are insignificant in this. Let's just experience it, see what happens, and and kind of go with that, uh, as opposed to trying to force it. That's that's kind of my sense on that.
0: People uh, listening can't see the smile on my face because that's why we're friends, right? That is (laughs) bang on
1: the way that I see the world.
0: Um, It's the most positive version of nihilism that I can think of. Like I'm, I'm a nihilist fundamentally this is mostly meaningless. So find the meaning in every day. Like pick your vocation for now and do that thing now. And if it changes, fuck it, let it change. Like that's that's fine with me. I'm okay with that. Um, okay.
1: So I think this is insane. To say yeah. something on that, I think people, why people maybe struggle with that is it goes back to that uncertainty and sitting in uncertainty yeah. is uncomfortable. And if you don't have this notion that this is who I am and this identity and it's always maybe a little bit liquid and you could be changing and you could be accepting this and you could be doing that, it 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 again takes away this notion of certainty that Mm. you can think this is the path that I'm on, this is what I'm about, this is what I do, and then your identity is very hard to shape and form uh, and you feel uncomfortable again.
0: Okay, I mean, look, we're trivializing this. I mean, we're both saying that it's, this sounds easy to be uncomfortable and enjoy uncertainty. You've had a relatively uncertain three or four years. How have you stayed stable, moving countries, changing industries, selling a career that defined your formative years at starting a business? How, how, do, how do you deal with uncertainty? How do you make it sound so easy?
1: Definitely, uh, well, maybe, maybe we are trivializing it. How do you say the word? Tri- trivializing tri- tri- it. Yeah, the way you said it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> it, it certainly has had its highs and lows. So When I say that um, you know the, the universe unfolded in thirteen point eight billion years, and this moment is special, that doesn't mean that I don't feel shit when things aren't going the way I wanted to go, or that I planned it to go, or that moving to a new country and a new experience and a new place hasn't come with its own um, challenges. Uh, you know, in the past year and a half. I've tried to launch multiple businesses. I've had uh, partnerships dissolve. I've had companies fail. I've had um, new endeavors kind of go terribly badly and lose a lot of money. Um, I've lost my visa and a whole bunch of stuff that's happened in trying to move to the (laughs) US um, and experiences that have come with that. And many of them have been challenging in a time of a pandemic and being, you know, sitting at home uh, on Zoom every single day. Um, But maybe what it's forced is that this kind of notion of trying to find external validation and trying to find the thing that I'm going to peg my existence on every single day uh, has become less and less important. And I've spent more time. During this time, internally reflecting, I've had more time to uh, start to write. I've had more time to meditate. I've had more time to do things like breath work uh, and really tap into the things that I feel are the kind of um, sources of truth for me as to what does it mean to be here and now as well as be able to remove myself and say, well, also, what does it look like over a longer timeline, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, to take myself out of the day-to-day? So those have been some of the things that have been very helpful in not getting lost in the roller coaster of the day-to-day existence and things that are imagined going right or going wrong in whatever it is that I'm trying to do.
0: Yeah, I suppose um, this is one of the values of having this kind of conversation with someone that I've known for so long and had so many good conversations with is we can go deep quick. Um, But there is something that I want to tap on there. uh, The last part that you said around long-term thinking, it's one of the things that I'm discovering about curious people is there is this ability to think longer term, that if you think immediately then nothing is efficient. It's not efficient to be curious. It's not efficient to waste time. It's not efficient to be bored, to do research, to dive deeply into things, to lay plans and wait for them to happen. So has the long-term thinking been something that's helped you um, kind of understand your life a bit better and your role a bit better? Or, and how do you deal with long-term versus short-term in your personal life? Um, in your business life too, not just your personal
1: life. Sure so it's going to probably sound like a strange answer but i often my think favorite when, kind. I, <laughs> when i'm when i'm walking and i see a tree i often ask myself how old is that tree and it's a it's it's a strange uh, thing to be thinking about but it gives me a perspective of kind of my age relative to things Uh, outside of me or outside of my existence and some trees are hundreds of years old Um, and I just think like has this tree seen in its existence in this reality in in the world that we live in today Um, and how does it get affected by the day-to-day like emotions of the weather now I don't know if a tree feels anything and thinks about anything or anything like that. So uh, that's why it sounds like a strange way of getting the perspective. But it gives me the ability to zoom out and say, again, that this universe has unfolded over such a long time period that I'm able to then say, well, what does my life look like in my existence if I think I'm going to live to 100, 120, hopefully somewhere in that kind of uh, age range? Um, What is going on right now? How important is is that going to be a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now? And if you use that as a mechanism, you find that most things are not that significant and that important. The things that are important um, is the, or at least the question for me, is kind of the who as opposed to the what. So, who are you spending time with? Who are you getting involved with? Who are you trying to become? As opposed to, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to get involved with? What are you trying to become? And if you have the who in the question, that timeline then becomes an easier answer because if you're doing the right thing, in inverted commas, with the person who you think is the right person, that compounds. That becomes something that can develop from a one-week relationship to a one-year to a 10-year to a hundred years uh, and carry on going as opposed to today I'm working on this thing. And it sounds like I you know, come to that realization very easily, but it, it's from the experience of trying to jump into the what like when COVID came, everyone was selling PPE. I jumped into trying to sell masks and doing the what of PPE at the same time as everyone else. And that didn't work out and it failed dismally. Um, so just the experience of trying to uh, shift my focus from the day-to-day what to the who has really changed my way of thinking about the things that I'm trying to do, work on and, and trying to build. Does that answer the question wow. on, on timeline? It does. It it does. And I, I love that. I've
0: I've never thought about um, my shift towards the who too. And more intrinsically, my shift over the last five years has been, who do I want to be in the in the near future, in the short term, the long term, the medium term? And that then informs who I hang out with, who I listen to, who I take advice from, and what I work on. Because it's more fundamental who you want to be in the world than what you do in the world. And more pragmatically, I've spent the last five years with my psychologist trying to decouple what I do with my self-worth. And the way to do that is, who do you want to be? And then what do you like? Not what do you do and what do you like? That's an interesting observation. I mean, shit, we're not even 20 minutes into this and I'm learning more about you than I have in years.
1: Um, I just want to add to what you just said. Yeah. Um, You know, Simon Sinek says, start with why. I think that's, it's an okay question. I would say, start with who. And if you start from that basis, it gives you all the kind of scaffolding to build from. Start with why seems like a pretty existential question. Uh, And often it's very hard for you to grasp like, okay, what's the why behind this? Starting with who, like you just said, who do I want to become? Who do I want to work with? Who do I want to help? Um, Who do I want to be? It's a much simpler question that gets to the root of what it is that you're trying to do on a on a day-to-day basis in, in any of those types of conversations.
0: Feels to me like you've just written the title of your book, Start With <laughs> Who, Not Why. Um, what, I want to bring this who idea back to the concept of curiosity. Um, yeah. How does the who inform what you're curious about, what you read, what you study, what you pursue? Um, how, how does that ideal trickle down into the rest of your thinking?
1: Um, So it first starts with what the who for myself. So who am I and who am I wanting to be and who do I want to become? Um, And who are the people that I want to spend time with and learn from? Uh, And then I find that it kind of figures itself out that once you have that, you, you get attracted to certain individuals, certain books, certain writers, certain mediums, and other things don't resonate as well. Uh, And it kind of just finds itself to that path as opposed to actively going out and looking for it. You hear a podcast that's Mm -hmm. interesting. You like the way that that person speaks. You think you project yourself onto them. You think they're similar to you. You like their values. You start listening to them. Someone else who isn't that, you push away from them, even though, you know, you don't even know that person that's on a podcast. Um, So immediately just having that sense of your own who will attract the kind of people, your own who and who you want to be will attract the kind of people into your life that will help you get there because it's what, you're, it's what you're putting out there that will come back to you. It's a mirror of everything that you see on, on, on yourself. Um, mm. So I don't think there's like a calculated process of this is the person, this is the person, this is. Um, and often it's also easier to know who isn't. And by knowing who isn't, you often find the who is uh, in those equations. And you'll get it wrong. I've had a couple of partnerships that haven't worked out Um, and you learn from each one of those why they didn't work out and who are you in the relationship and who's the partner uh, and what does it mean to now find the people who are in your kind of um, tribe that you want to spend the rest of your life with.
0: I want to stick with this idea of the people that you surround yourself with. Um, I've said for a while that idea of you are the sum total of the five people you spend the most time with. I've been saying something similar but slightly different that you become the worst parts of the five people you spend the most time with too. So you better be happy with the worst parts of them, Never mind the best parts. So I use the example, if your favorite uncle that you see all the time is a little bit racist, should probably cut him out because you're going to (laughs) become a little bit racist. Um, So I don't think that people take seriously enough the inherited relationships from our past and what they do to you in the present. Like they might not be valuable to you. They might not be good for you. Um, you get to choose your family. You get to choose your friends, whether you like it or believe it or not. We have agency. How does that factor into your um, choosing your career, choosing the things you're interested in in relation to the people past, present, and that you're looking for in the future? Like, Do you actively curate
1: people? How does that work? It's a good question because moving to New York, um, you, you kind of yeah. you create a blank slate. And now everything is... Um, is almost up for grabs. You don't know anyone. You don't have those networks. You don't have those relationships. You don't know um, the culture. You don't know how um, how things will unfold. And it, it kind of brings you into the space of, of, if you want to use uncertainty and curiosity as the kind of um, opposite sides of the same coin, it brings you into extreme uncertainty, which makes you extremely curious about uh, life here. Um, so I've had to try and actively work on, on trying to find those people, um, within the communities that I'm in. So within the VC world, that already is a frame that I'm with working within on within the VC world, who are the people that I resonate with that I think I can work with, um, within the community of people in New York that are into alternative consciousness and psychedelics and all of that type of stuff. Who are those people? So it's around again, coming back to who I'm like who am I and the, and who do I want to be and what are those circles mm. and let me start interacting in those circles where there are communities and find the people that resonate with me within them and using that again as the kind of scaffolding to go out and try and find uh, again not the whats it's not like I want to, the, the what that I want to do is this therefore I must go and work with anyone in that uh, in that game uh, as opposed to going back to the question on the who
0: But it is quite intentional, right? You're not like letting life happen to you and just accepting whoever you used to be with and whoever's around. Like you are, you're quite uh, disconcerting, no? Discerning is the word um, with who you you choose, right? It's not accidental.
1: Yeah, you're discerning with who you choose, but you have to be open to everyone that comes at you because right now I'm... I, I don't know, many people. So every person is an opportunity. It may not work out, but every person is worth the, the conversation, the call, the meetup, because um, that community still needs to be built where you have your foundation. Whereas maybe in South Africa, you've already got your group of friends, your colleagues, the people you've known for 10 years or 20 years. Um, each new person is incremental, whereas here each new person is exponential in, uh, in building that, that community here.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. Um- so I want to go back, uh, far back, and ask you about the person you can think of who sparked curiosity in your life for the first time or who nurtured it for you the most. Like, tell me about that person and
1: and how they relate to your life. Um, that's a good question. I'd probably say the the people who sparked curiosity for me mm-hmm. the most were were my parents early on. They were immigrants to a new country. They never spoke the language. Um, We never really had to worry about the food on our plates. They were not well off by any stretch of the imagination. And they included me in everything that they were doing from a very young age. So they were selling clothing in the flea markets. They were making art. They were um, trying to sell... Cars, renovate houses, and just doing a, a myriad of different things to try and find ways to sustain themselves uh, and and our family, um, and nothing was nothing was beyond them or beneath them, and everything was interesting to be able to try and do. Uh, And just being exposed to that kind of creativity from my parents from a very young age made that same kind of belief in me that everything is interesting, nothing's beneath me, nothing's beyond me, and I can pursue anything and everything that comes your way is a potential opportunity if you want it to be. I think that's kind of the first inclination that I had. And I really, if I look back at those years, I enjoyed them very fondly. I'm sure now that I'm older, my parents were stressed out of their mind. But for me, it was a beautiful playground and creative space to be able to explore these things together with them, be part of the flea market and trying to sell lipstick and creating um, the houses that eventually my dad built. And just being part of all of that and seeing it unfold was was um, the first experience for me on what can be um, what can be done. Yeah, amazing. That's um,
0: really nice to hear. So I don't feel like curiosity is the most efficient way to exist. Um, and it isn't, right? You, you Sometimes you go down paths and it's a complete waste of time other than just adding to your existing knowledge. Um, so what I want to know is how do you bake that into your day? Personally, professionally, do you allow yourself boards time, time to wonder, time to think. Do you factor it into your calendar? Like, is it formal? How, how does this curiosity get fed in your life?
1: Uh, we've had ample opportunity to uh, to think over the past year and a half, just because uh, <laughs> we've, we've been wrapped up True. wrapped up on, on our own, or at least uh, at least I have been for a long part of the year. So, um, there's been a lot of opportunity to to be in my head. What I find has helped me structure curiosity into my life and, and perspective and potential um, has been things that help get me out of my head, things that help me not be so cerebral. Um, and that has been incorporating meditation and, and strengthening that practice in my day-to-day um, rituals, um, shamanic breath work or conscious breathwork, uh, which is an alternative way of using your breath to change your state of consciousness. Uh, and in that state, then explore whatever comes up in that. Uh, and those two things have been really fundamental over the past year and a half in keeping me grounded, keeping me present, allowing me to expand beyond the kind of scarcity of the situation that the world was feeling in this time of uncertainty and COVID and lockdown and closing down and businesses and everything that's happening and still be able to come up with new uh, perspectives, new ideas, new uh, creativity in that time. Um, And then I've also recently started incorporating writing and a ritual of writing every single day. Um, And what I found interesting in the writing is that by putting a constraint into it, it forces more curiosity. So I'm I need to write an article a day. I have an hour. It's scheduled. This is what I need to do. And within an hour, I you know, open up the blank canvas and start writing. And that, force fun- that forcing function has resulted in further creativity, more output, as opposed to before. When I was first doing it, I was like, I'm going to write and I'd have as much time as I wanted to and nothing would be produced. So this idea of a constraint, I think, also has enabled... Um, some of that uh, creative capability because your mind now is, is, is thinking on a compressed timeline to be able to produce yeah. something. I
0: have a microscript for that. I like to tell people that constraints cause creativity.
1: Yeah, I agree. I like that.
0: Yeah, as they do. And Seth, I'm going to quote Seth Godin here, who's uh, one of my writing spirit animals. He likes to say that nobody has ever had speakers block. Nobody's had talkers block. We all get writers block, but why the fuck don't we struggle to talk? And it's because we don't constrain ourselves to to write in those blocks. And I got to say, and I'll I'll punt your newsletter with pleasure here. um, Your writing is improving at a rate of knots. Publishing every day is brilliant. Um, Please share share the URL. Where can people
1: subscribe? Uh, It's yossihassen.substack.com. And thank you. Thank you for the plug.
0: No, I mean, genuinely, I'm seeing the improvements every day. Uh, Noah Kagan, I don't know if you follow him on YouTube or know what he's done, but he's got this thing he likes to talk about, the rule of 100. Do you want to start anything? Just do 100 and then decide if you want to stop. Rule of 100. Um, and on that, I was finding some random research on YouTube channels that have exploded. And on average, to get to a million subscribers, the average YouTuber has uploaded 1,000 videos. Wow. 1,000. Yeah. So I mean, come on! You do a thousand newsletters, dude. Guaranteed, you'll hit some crazy numbers. Just keep at it.
1: Well, we saw yesterday um, Beeple yeah. selling selling dude. his uh, his artwork for sixty nine million dollars. Um, you know, effectively for a JPEG that has his signature on it. And <laughs> you look at that today, and you think that is crazy. But in essence, that same principle. He was producing a artwork every day. For five thousand days, and uh, and obviously there's also a factor of luck. But if he wasn't doing that for five thousand days, the luck wouldn't have come. So what you know? Exactly Again, what with
0: Seth Godin, eight thousand five hundred blog posts he's written every day. He writes a blog post. I mean, you're bound to find some level of success if you do anything that consistently. Yeah. Um, okay, so one of the fav- my favorite things about you is your vast professional curiosity. So like. You aren't a VC in the traditional sense. Sure, you, you invest money and you have historically and you're going to go forward, but you invest in some insane stuff like crypto, blockchain, you're looking at psychedelics. So how do you push curiosity in your professional life and, and what sort of role does it take um, on your day-to-day professional life?
1: So in my professional life, it's, it's actually quite fortunate the work that I do um, it encourages and rewards the curiosity or or the, the curious mind. Um, and one of the phrases that we have in VC or the questions we ask is, is this forward-looking or is this backwards-looking? And basically what okay. that question is asking is when I'm looking at a business and you're evaluating it or you're evaluating the idea, is it backwards-looking? Is it as in, is it looking at the past and saying because this worked this way and it worked um, like this in this industry, we can replicate that and do it in another industry, or we can improve on it and go back and and build on what has been, or is it forward-looking, saying this is where we think the world is going? If we use this technology in a completely different way and um, enable this, the world will move in this direction. It's not that it's necessarily building on the past. It's bringing a whole new future um, equation. And asking that question forces you to, to look at what does it look like, not just on a linear progression, if we just carry on going, what is something completely new that could be exponential and could be a game changer, what does that mean? And if we look at this Beeple example as an example, you know, every day for 5,000 days, you, you produced a JPEG. And if you just looked backwards looking, well, if you project forward what's going to happen in day 5,001 and 5,002 and 5,003, pretty much the same thing that happened in day 4,889 or 4,890. (laughs) You introduce this new technology called NFTs and all of a sudden that future looks very, very different. You sell an artwork for $70 million. It has nothing necessarily to do with the previous, um, days of work. It's not backwards looking anymore. Now it's, what does this world look like? What does the future look like? What is the potential that this opens without holding yourself to, well, this is the reality that I know I have to form my opinions based on the things that we already have. So, that question in and of itself is key to what we're asking in evaluating company, but it's also key to pushing you into what does the future look like? What does a forward-looking statement look like as opposed to this is my existence. The past 20 years or the past 30 years or the past 10 years, you've been doing this thing every single day and this is how you've always done it. So this is how you must do it. And this, and this is the results that you've always achieved. It's always been, uh, you know, X, therefore tomorrow is only going to be X plus one, as opposed to if I bring this in, does that now change the entire landscape? And that's the advantage of the industry. It rewards that type of thinking. Yeah, You maybe um, don't want that thinking when you're a pilot of a plane and you're trying and that pilot is going to now try and land your plane. Yeah. you want to know in a new this way.: is wor- <laughs> in a new way. This has worked 1,000 <laughs> times out of 1,000 times. You want the pilot to do it that way. So it's not an appropriate way of thinking in every industry, but if you're in creative yeah. industry, if you're a knowledge worker, if you're trying to um, not be linear in the results that you're able to achieve, that's the type of thinking that you need to bring in.
0: Yeah, wow, that's extremely interesting. Uh, there's, there's a few things I want to pick up on here. Um, the first is without too much detail, um, people, NFTs, and you mentioned the practice, like doing the work, 5,000 days of building safe code and 8,500 days of blog posts. What, is, what does all of this tell you about the nature of work? Like a lot of people just do their jobs, right? And just get it done. But I'm realizing, and Seth Godin's latest book talks about the practice being the way. And I'm personally realizing this. And you're realizing and writing a newsletter. In your professional life, Like, does, do you resonate with startups that are just worried about the work more than they are about the outcome? What does it tell you about work, watching people and making $70 million in one JPEG?
1: I think what it's telling us about work right now is that there are... Um, There are ways to leverage the work. There's a way to bring leverage into your work so that it's not a function of hours times a rate and that's the outcome that you can produce. The way that things can be leveraged today are accessible to everyone that wasn't accessible to people 10 or 20 years ago. You know, leverage in terms of media was only available to anyone who owned a media house or you were a celebrity and you got screened. Screen time because of that, or you were a radio um, personality, those were the only ways you could leverage your message and leverage the work that you were doing, or you had enough money to advertise in newspapers or publications today. Anyone can pick up their phone, record themselves, and send out a message. Whether that's completely positive or sometimes negative, or in all of that type of debate in between, everyone now has the platform to leverage themselves. Anyone can become a writer and start producing content. Anyone can start their own podcast. People are now on Clubhouse, uh, you know, talking and building audiences. You have TikTok superstars. You have Twitter. You have LinkedIn. You have all these platforms that now give you leverage to the work that you're doing. So if you're doing the work anyway, you know, if Seth Godin is thinking about these things anyway, well, him writing his blog is giving him leverage and a megaphone to share that and build his own type yeah. of audience and build his newsletter and everything like that. With that comes a fortune of content, a fortune of noise, but still at the same time the opportunity to leverage the work that you're doing. So that again, it's not a linear result that you're producing of you know time times rate equals outcome. It's now times, time, time, times rate, times leverage that gives you an exponential outcome.
0: Yeah. Love it. Great observation. Um, The other thing I wanted to pick up on your last statements was um, the idea of backward looking, forward looking. And I want to relate that to curiosity. Uh, I'm not sure if you know, but Tim Ferriss has a rule that he won't read books from the year he's in that are published in the same year.
1: I didn't know that. Which,
0: which I really like um, because he's like, there's no weight to them. They haven't stood the test of time. So I took that up and I've I've gotten a bit more extreme about it this year. I'm trying to read more consciously from things that are minimum of a hundred years old, minimum. And it's stunning to me how similar things were a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, 300 years ago. We haven't progressed that far. So how do you balance um, curiosity about the past and curiosity about the future. There are people like Elon Musk who is dead set on the future. Uh, I don't imagine he's looking back ten thousand years. Um, in your professional life, and as a VC, someone looking for new tech, what's your interest in being curious about the past, and how does that relate to the present and the future?
1: Great question. So um, I might I might borrow your uh, principle and start reading uh, some books from a hundred years ago.
0: Um, <laughs> cool,
1: because. I do believe that you know, first principles are called that for a reason. There's first principles and everything else is, uh, is being built on top of that. So understanding the first principles uh, is key and, and important. In predicting the future, you, you, you're not necessarily predicting it, but you're also looking at what are the ways that the world has responded to things in the past. So if I'm looking forward and I'm saying, I'm going to look at what's happening in the crypto world and blockchains, well, I am also borrowing on my experience of what happened in the open source software world in 20 years of that unfolding and how did that play out and what were the things that were happening mm-hmm. at a point in time that looked like this was going to fail and looked like it was going to make it succeed. And what are the similar patterns that are happening today in crypto that I think are the same things that are happening there? Now, obviously, it's a guess. I have no way of knowing for sure, but it gave me the conviction and the confidence that I've seen this before, I can now apply this forward-looking because I've seen how this plays out before. And I imagine reading books from 100 years ago, seeing what people are speaking about, what are the things, the conversations, the theories that are being developed, when you're applying that to something new, you can say, well, actually, I've seen something like this before and I've seen how it plays out. I can now make that same kind of prediction with a little bit more confidence if I'm an investor, as an example, and place that there.
0: Yeah, love that. And um, yeah, it's incredible you mentioned the uh, concept of first principles. so I initially came across the first principles thinking when Elon Musk was talking about creating a battery for Tesla and how he told his team to do that and think about first principles. And then uh, two months ago, I started reading uh, one of Descartes' essays from 1637. And in that essay, he talks about first principles, obviously not using the word first principles, but he's, he's meandering and wondering around why we think about the end result and not the start of the thing and the parts that make up the start of the thing and I thought to myself, there's a whole generation of human beings who think that Elon Musk came up with the idea of first principles <laughs> when it's a more, it's a 400 year old concept um, and I, it just it breaks my brain to think and uh, yeah I love the way you've said that if we can see how people have reacted to things in the past we can kind of predict how they're going to react to things in the future which is interesting to me. Um, cool. So. Sure. This question um, is it an interesting one and one that I love to hear answers about. But how do you know what curiosity to pursue? Because it isn't efficient and we've discussed that. But how, do you, how does your, your interest peak and go, ooh, yeah, this is something. Let me, NFTs, this is something. Because, I mean, you, you, you and I, been, we've discussed crypto for years now. How, how did you know back then that was the thing?
1: So the honest answer is I don't think I'd I do um, you know, okay. I I get a feeling or I get a thought that, wow, this is interesting. And that thought drives a feeling of excitement. And then I pull that excitement into action and then I try something. And in trying that something, either I get positive feedback or negative feedback in terms of the results that I'm getting. And then it's, well, am I still excited about this thing? And I'm still, um, I still feel that this is the thing that I should be pursuing doing, then I try something else and I try something else and I try something else. And I think that is the creative process is that you have an inkling of an idea, you pursue it with energy of the emotion that you put into it. Most of the time, it doesn't come back the way you expected it would and you re-pour that energy into it and you iterate and change and iterate and change and iterate and change and you probably end up with something that might even be very different to what you originally anticipated. But it then shows that this thing has now, um, you know, played out the way you thought it would, and it actually becomes a reality. And it's probably got to do more with the conviction that you have in the pursuit of that thing that you're curious about than the idea itself. And those two things, I think, play a very key part together, you know, curiosity and conviction. That the people that have been able to take their curiosity, turn that into something that has been well beyond their wildest imaginations are the ones who've had the conviction to stick through it, especially when it looked like it was failing time and time again. And the thing that I struggle with and the question I have is, well, sometimes how do you know when you're delusional and that you should actually just give up on this thing and that it actually isn't a good idea, it isn't something that should exist? verse carry on persistently pursuing and pushing and grinding and kind of forcing reality to come um, you know mm. the Steve Jobs kind of reality distortion field of distortion. making <laughs> yeah. it making it happen uh, I don't have an answer Root to forcing that question. It into the world yeah exactly I don't have an answer to that question but you know, that's what we look for in founders who we invest in is that yeah. kind of person who has that conviction to their curiosity, whether they're just going to make this thing work, whether you want it or don't want it, they're going to force it into reality.
0: Mm. And I want to add two other things to the conviction uh, and obsession and iterative nature that you've mentioned and ask you about the relationship between ego and failure. And the things you continue to pursue. So I'll put some context on this. The the older I've gotten, the more I've been conscious of ego and how it fucks up the things I do. So the more I've tried to be aware of it, let go of the ego, and go, oh yeah, maybe I'm wrong about this. Let me change. Let me shift. Let me be curious about it. One of my nicisms is strong opinions loosely held. It's one of the things that I live by. So how do you have you factored in ego and failure into this? idea of being curious and iterating and discovering?
1: I don't think I've ever thought of the question. So it's a good question. Um, so that's the fourth time you've said that. I'm,
0: I'm really chuffed that you think my questions are so good. I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: how do I think of ego in the world of failure?
0: Because they're tied, right? It's like to be curious, you have to be brave. And I'll quote Brene Brown here. She likes to say, don't take criticism from anybody not being brave with their own lives. And I love that. Um, I'm I'm now very dis- disregarding of anybody who's sitting on a pedestal protecting their bullshit, and then criticizing what I'm doing. Um, but when you fail, you open yourself up. When you fail, you know that people are looking at you. And the truth is they're not, but you think they are. So your ego gets a little bit damaged if you fail. And here's the thing that I think is the the crux of the last five years of my self-discovery is if you don't care that your ego is being damaged, then you're more open to failure, which means you're more open to learning, which means you're more open to progress. That's kind of the things, the flywheel that I'm tying together for myself. So when I was in my 20s, I was like, oh, I care what people think. So let me be careful about failure. Now I'm like, fuck it. Let me fail as often as I can. I don't care what people think.
1: I like it. So I think maybe what I'm taking from what you're saying um, and can relate back to it is your your propensity to sit with the full range of emotion, and the length of time that you can sit with that emotion is the um, is your ability to deal with the perceived failure that's happening so if you're able to yeah. sit with the discomfort of Maybe people are talking about you. Maybe you've just made a fool of yourself. All the thoughts that are going on that are driving that feeling of, I'm yes. an idiot, I'm a failure, I'm a whatever it is. Uh, and you can sit with that and actually just bear that. Then you're able to then continue going on. And if you shy away from it and you're like, no, no, I can't handle those vibrations in my body. Um, you immediately will collapse and the ego will overtake and overco- and and then you no longer will come uh, at it again. Um, and that process is everyone having to deal with that. No matter how successful you are, you are dealing with those types of things. But the people yeah. who are able to sit with that and overcome it are the ones who are most likely the ones who can then, you know, Know, continue on that conviction journey that we've spoken about yeah that or you're a narcissist and nothing touches you and <laughs> you, you and uh, you don't get bothered at all and by they anything. Both
0: end up in success sure <laughs> uh, but maybe maybe that's also just going back to your founder comment that that's what the kind of founders you invest in are the ones that are dogged and dogmatic and push and push and push maybe maybe it's also that the way you phrased it is great so maybe they can just sit with that discomfort for longer until the world realizes that they're right. You know, Paul Graham likes to say, uh, first they think you're crazy, then they fight with you, blah, blah, blah. That sort of saying, maybe that's what good founders do is they're like, fuck it, I don't care if you think I'm crazy. I don't care if you fight with me. I'm just building. I'm just going to build. Okay, what you say. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, the... They, they,
1: they've, they've been able to build their own internal conviction so that it's stronger mm. than the feedback that they get from the world. Um, and that, that's, and that's, yeah. that's what they're able to do. Obviously, at times... They're challenged and it may, you know, depending on how long it's not working and all the things that are happening, but they're so fundamentally believe in what it is that they're trying to do that it doesn't matter that the feedback isn't now. They know that on a long enough timeline, it's going to work.
0: Gosh, that internal versus external conviction, that's, that's key. That's such a big one. Um, okay. So this could be literally anything. What are you the most curious about right now? What's occupying your imagination?
1: And um, well it's time, ta- you know, time bound. So probably right now, I would say kind of 70% of my curiosity is on this uh $69 million sale that happened yesterday in, in <laughs> NFT land. And the questions I have on my mind are: does this change everything? Does it change nothing? Is this just hype? Um, are we going to see the fractionalization and tokenization and NFTization of everything. of everything? Um, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Um what does the future look like in this type of um now new reality, and yep. uh what technologies are going to come from it and should I be spending more of my time with people um building in that direction or um you know is it is it getting excited about the new shiny new toy um so that's probably like seventy percent of my time and the other thirty percent don't.
0: Sure, go ahead. But yeah, tell me about the other 30% and then I'll weigh in on the NFT thing. I'm, I'm interested in
1: that, yeah? Yeah, um, 30% of the time is I'm, a non, I'm still a non-executive of the coding school in South Africa, we think code. Um, and how do we take it from, you know, today we're training roughly 500 students across two campuses. How do we expand that to 5,000 students a year uh, across multiple campuses? How do we get funding? And, and the, those two things are almost linked. Like if someone's willing to spend $69 million dollars on a artwork that's digital, the money exists, the capital's out there. We can raise $70 million to build a multi-campus school across the African continent that will, you know, be able to train people for free. Um, you know, that possibility has to get the been story unlocked. right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, so I on the question of does tokenization, fractionalization, NFTization change everything or nothing. I'm interested because you and I attended Consensus Conference two years in a row back to back. I think that was three and four years ago. And even then, they were talking about tokenization of properties, tokenization of things that never used to be tokenized, fractionalization of everything. And the example that I use all the time is you can't buy a fraction of a share of Amazon. You don't have $2,000. You don't own Amazon stock. That's the end of it. So I'm, I think that it's not this new bursting onto the scene of NFTization of everything. I think it's now going mainstream. Now people are finding adoption, they're finding relevance in the technology, whereas before it was for rich people to tokenize buildings so that other rich people can fuck whatever. Yeah. I, I think it is an, it's not a new thing, which uh, Simon de la and Neil would tell you. They've been looking at it for a decade, basically. Yep. So I don't think it's going away. Um, and I think it's it justifies your interest because someone like you can invest in things that make this mainstream. Um, that's just my observation.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's going away. So if I answer that question, no, I think it's going to accelerate and propel. And uh, the notion of us living in the metaverse is going to eventually happen. And uh, this uh, <laughs> we'll have uh, uh, Ready Player One happening before we know it. Um, So I do think it will accelerate it. It's more on what is the timing of that? What does that look like? Is is it the next year? Is it the next five? Is it the next 10? Um, And who are going to be the new creators in it? Is it the profile of an entrepreneur that we've now pattern matched for over the past? This is the kind of the backwards looking versus forwards Mm. looking. Mm. Is it a profile of someone like me and you who's, you know, try to build multiple businesses and those are going to be the people that are going to be, building this next wave of technology or is it someone that looks very different to me and you and comes yeah. from a very artistic background and a has never built a business designer and, to, and a, <laughs> a clip art designer and they're the people that are going to shape our new reality. And, and what does that look like? Those are kind of the questions on my mind. Yeah. What a
0: great um, position you've put yourself in to be able to think about these things as a career Um and I think that your observation about just doing the work and taking time, then you don't know where the work goes. And I think it's true for your career, right? This is not where you thought you'd be 10 years ago. 10 years ago, you yeah. had an email marketing business, like, or whatever. Like, that's it's a great
1: thing. Okay. We, so... We, we were um, on the other side. We were an anti spam business, but
0: same. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Look <laughs> at that. Um, what, what do you wish someone had told you when you were just starting your career now that where you are? Like, what do you wish someone had told
1: you? Um, probably just to extend my timeline. Uh, when I was just starting my career, I was very impatient. Things needed to happen very quickly. Mm. I needed to have, uh, you know, my idea of massive success in a short, short timeline. So anything that didn't work out felt like a tremendous setback. And if I was just able to extend the timeline, those day-to-day fluctuations wouldn't have been so severe. Even if you, you know, use the example of Bitcoin as an example, you know, if you look at the timeline from today, from when it started till today, that that line just continues going up and up and up. But in between, the day-to-day fluctuations have been severe. Um, so having mm-hmm. that perspective in the start of my career, I think would have um, made those bands not as high and low in the day-to-day. They would have kind yeah. of shielded them a little bit more by being able to step back and say, well, what does five years look like? Are we moving on the right trajectory? Then this doesn't matter.
0: Yeah, I feel like that sort of advice is actually a superpower for anyone trying to achieve anything that is really big and ambitious. Having a long-term view is a superpower. Like I I agree with you 100%. If I was 21, I would go back and say, Jesus, build something for when you're 35. Take 15 years. Build it for 15 years. You're going to be fine. It's great advice yours.
1: I mean, I think I think someone like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, the people that we yeah. we, we put on pedestals in terms of the business world, um, are probably thinking in ten to twenty-year bets as opposed to quarter bets, and other people are thinking in day-to-day bets. So if you're able to yeah. do that, you're you're able to build these types of businesses that, uh, that outlast yourself, or at least um, are able to achieve far more than. You're, you're able to anticipate from just focusing on you know, this year, this month, this quarter.
0: Yeah, a little anecdote before we close out um, on Jeff Bezos thinking long term. You know that he spent $40 million building a time perfect to the second clock that will tick for 10,000 years under his farm in Texas. And he did that purely as an exercise to show people that that is the timeframe we should be thinking in. 10,000 years. When I'm gone, this clock will still be fucking ticking below my farm. So yeah, long-term.
1: Okay. um, What's keeping you up at night right now? Um, What's keeping me up at night? There's not really much that I would say keeps me up. And I'm very excited. So I'm very excited about what's happening in the industry that I'm in and all the activity. So what keeps me up is probably more just uh, ideas and thoughts than any kind of stresses and, uh, And problems. Um, Yeah, potential is keeping me up at night. I like that. That's a good, positive uh,
0: answer. It shows where your headspace is. Um, Okay. And finally, where can people find you, follow you, buy from you, subscribe to you? Your stage is now to tell people where (laughs) to go. You
1: can follow me on Twitter, uh, at Yossi Hassan. You can subscribe to to my daily-ish newsletter at uh, <laughs> Um and those two channels will will give you pl- plenty of access to me and any questions that you have. Happy to follow up on.
0: Awesome, Yoss. Um, I can't wait to continue reading your daily-ish newsletter. Thank you so much for
1: your time and insights. This has been absolutely riveting. Thanks for the opportunity, Nick. Always a pleasure to chat, man.
0: Thank you for listening to the Curious Cult podcast the show where we talk to incredible people about their fascinating curiosity. If you like this episode, please rate the show, like it, share it, and generally be kind to us and tell people about it. My goal is to spark curiosity that changes the world. And you can help by talking about the show to anyone who will listen. Stay curious. Until next time.